0: Is this on? John. on, hang on. Should I switch? Oh no, okay. Great. Really lovely to be sharing with you this morning, this afternoon, this evening, whenever it is. Great to be sharing with you. Um, what do you think of when you think of creation? For me, I tend to think of hills, fluffy sheep, moo cows, everything. Um, perhaps even the sun. But my idea of creation is a bit on the small side. If we have a look at the first slide... Um, Dave. Um, this is a picture of Voyager uh, in 1994. It's about 20 years ago and Voyager, the satellite was sent out and it was to go as far as it could into outer space and it turned around in 1994 and took a picture um, of Earth. And Earth is that pale blue dot um, suspended in a beam of sun sunlight. And every bit of human history, every bit of creation that we are familiar with has taken place on that little dot suspended in the sunbeam. Every event in human history, Christ's death, and right the way back. Um, But that's just our small little corner of our solar system. But if we zoom out a bit on the next slide, we can see that we fit, of course, within a very big Milky Way. Our galaxy is about 300 billion stars uh, in there, many with their own planets. Um, And then if we zoom out again, Each dot there is a galaxy and there are estimated to be about 150 billion galaxies. Some of them are dwarf galaxies or irregular, but many of them are as big as our Milky Way. And that's an awful lot of stars, an awful lot of creation. It's a huge cosmos. And Paul tells us that the whole of creation is in bondage to decay. It's in need of liberation and being brought into freedom. Jesus' last words before he died his last word was "Tetelestai," which is usually translated in your Bibles as it is finished, which should be understood um, as the work is accomplished, there's nothing left to do. And since that beautiful word was uttered, much thought has been given to the different theories of how, just how, the work of the cross could reconcile the whole of creation, all things, to God. And so in our G2 Lent series, we've been looking at some of the different theories about the work of the cross to help us engage with this journey towards Easter that we're on. And I like to think of these different theories about the cross as different but connected stories and storylines within a stage play. It's not a linear play with a single storyline, but lots of different storylines. And since, Christ different, uh, since Christ's death, at different times, different Stories about the cross have taken centre stage. And they've emerged and become the primary way in which the church has understood and interacted and reacted to the wider story of the cross. So for the past 800 years, the big story of the cross, the one that's taken centre stage, is the one about justification that Gareth spoke so well on a few weeks ago. It's about Christ being our sacrifice, uh, being our substitute. The story of the cross, in fact most stories of the cross are centred on us, humanity. Christ taking our place, atoning for our sin, and receiving upon himself the punishment for our sin, and legally justifying us before God. And that's both right and necessary. We are willfully rebellious, negligent, weak, and in desperate need of inner transformation. Our repentance must be the prerequisite to reconciliation with God. But... A focus solely on human centered stories about the cross has come at a cost of another story. And we've forgotten this ancient story of the cross. This ancient story of the cross that, for the first thousand years of the church, was the big story about the cross, the meta narrative, the overarching story within which all the other stories about the cross find their place. This ancient story where the work of the cross is not centred around humanity, but around the whole cosmos, the whole of creation, the whole of that lot there. Everything. And this ancient story is called Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. Largely forgotten, other than being wheeled out on Easter Sunday, but largely forgotten the rest of the year, we ignore it at our cost, at a great cost. This ancient story begins with Christ Christ As creator of all a creation made free free to explore free to write the future free to do good free to do evil free to follow God and free to rebel against him and then Paul writes to the church of Colossae that in Jesus all things were created things in heaven and on earth things visible and invisible so in addition to us who are visible There are invisible beings, beings that we can't see, beings that are also free to do good, do evil, be loyal to God, or rebel against him. And these invisible beings are what um, Jesus calls the enemy, all led by a powerful fallen angel called Satan. And Peter would later refer to him as a lion, that strong, that powerful. It's really important for us to understand how Jesus saw Satan and the pervasive influence of his army. When Jesus talks about Satan and his army, he's not accommodating a first century marginal piece of Palestinian thought that the culture just happened to embrace because of its Roman occupation as some kind of metaphorical uh, projection of humanity's own evil actions. Nothing like that. Rather, this is the underlying force behind... Everything Jesus says and does—it comes clear, so clear, comes through so clearly. While our 21st-century enlightened mind might make us uncomfortable with the thought of a, of, an, of a spiritual enemy, we can't get through Jesus' ministry very far. We can't get through it very far on earth without Him once again explore, exposing the enemy as real, either through casting out a demon or speaking directly to the enemy or rebuking him. Whenever Jesus talks of advancing the kingdom, he means advancing it against the kingdom of darkness. Every healing, every repentance, every disciple added to their number is a gain for the kingdom of God and a loss for the kingdom of darkness. A little later, Paul would write in Colossians 1.13, The Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. That's two very clear opposing kingdoms. And so this ancient story goes that in the same first act of sin and rebellion where humanity separated itself from God from his provision and his protection humanity and creation also became captive to this powerful adversary Satan in bondage to sin and subject to death three times in John chapters 12 14 and 16 Jesus refers to Satan as the prince of this world 1 John 5:19 Uh, John says, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, we might question that. We might look around us and say, well, look, we don't see Satan. You know, what's the big deal? But actually, what we do see is people in captivity to principalities and powers. For instance, image. Why don't you look like the front cover of a magazine? You're too young, you're too young. No, now you're too old. Captives to a financial system. You know, there are captives everywhere. Have you, you've got to have your own home, haven't you? That's what uh, society's telling us. You've got to have a large disposable income. Security is found in a large pension pot. We've got captives to sex, to alcohol, to caffeine, to sports, to games, to social media, to Downton Abbey. And many, thing, many of these things, they're not bad when, until you're held captive by them, are they? We have people held captive by racism, sexism, by religion, by, oppressed by class, by poverty, by violence, by economy. That's what it means to be enslaved by Satan. So yes, we do see it everywhere. And instead of a creation made free, we're now born into bondage. So when Jesus is being tempted in the desert, he doesn't dispute Satan's claim that Satan can give the authority of all of the kingdoms on earth to whomever he chooses Jesus, speaking of Satan in Mark 3, says, No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. What Jesus is actually stating here is the intention of his earthly mission. Satan is the strong man that needs to be bound up. And we are the plunder that needs to be rescued, that needs to be liberated. 1 John 3, eight: The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the evil one. And so with a cosmos locked in war, with creation held in bondage to the enemy, humanity held captive by a powerful adversary, this strong man in steps Christ to our world. First, Jesus demonstrates the mission of God through his earthly ministry, showing the world what was to come through the cross. He would free out free people in bondage to sickness by healing them, release those enslaved to sin by forgiving them, cast out the enemy through exorcism, proved he could conquer death by bringing people back from the dead, affirming the outcasts and those oppressed by society. His ministry demonstrated the victory that the cross would bring, and then Jesus turned to Jerusalem and to the very climax of his mission. Now, at this point, the ancient story begins to speculate about the precise mechanics of the cross, and it goes like this. Um, God offers Jesus' death as payment in exchange for humanity's release. And since hurting God was always Satan's aim, uh, Christ's death, then, was a prize that he couldn't turn down, so he eagerly accepted it. But the devil hadn't realized that death couldn't hold a sinless person, as Jesus was, and having given up his captive hold on humanity Satan was left empty handed and this outworking of the story is called The Ransom View and it's exactly the storyline for the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe does you know, anybody see the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe? guess okay, most people if you haven't it's great great allegory, I know people who've read it and didn't realise it was an allegory of Jesus which I think is fantastic because now they can go back and read it and uh, read it as an allegory it's fantastic But in C.S. Lewis's Allegory, uh, Edward, one of the children, uh, his death is demanded by the white witch for his betrayal of his family. And Aslan, the lion, parlays with the witch and offers his own life in exchange for Edward's, which, as she's Aslan's enemy uh, and wants to be rid of the lion forever, she accepts. And Edward is rescued, and Aslan gives up his life on the stone table. But he's rescued the next day. Uh, resurrected the next day, sorry. Aslan explains that a willing victim who had committed, committed no treachery would force death to work backwards. The White Witch has the death... Um, the White Witch is left with neither Edward nor, nor Aslan. This mythic imagery, then, um, and this speculation of the, mecha- of the mechanics of the cross uh, is why this great story of triumph became relegated and, and ignored for 800 years, except on Easter Sunday, But the past century, it's seen this kind of revival as a central story because of its core. Because at its core, it's entirely biblical, and we see it right through the New Testament. And the core of the ancient story is this, that on the cross, Christ won the decisive battle in this cosmic war. The cross was the decisive victory over sin, the decisive victory over death, and the decisive victory over Satan. It was the moment in the cosmic war that decided everything because it was the moment of the war that when the war was won. It was the moment of the war when the whole cosmos, the war of the whole cosmos was won. Satan was a mortally wounded enemy, a defeated foe. And the strong man was finally bound. And freedom for us captives was won. Humanity was now free to walk away from the enemy. So the freedom was won. But so many people resist walking into this new life. I was reading Neil Anderson. He's written some great books. Profound effects on me when I was younger. And, um, and he was telling the story that there were many slaves working on the plantations in the US. And, and when they were freed um, at the end of the Civil War a couple of hundred years ago, um, they heard that they were free, but they just carried on. They just couldn't leave. They carried on doing what they'd always done ...for their masters and living in captivity... ...because they didn't actually have another way of living. Amazing. So then teachers from the north came down... ...and set up schools to educate the children of these slaves. And uh, from this book in 1936... ...a series of interviews um, from the grandchildren... ...of people who were in slavery... ...he says the slaves had been taught... ...that their brain was inferior to the whites who owned them. And for this reason many parents refused to send their children to school, thinking it a waste of time, that too much learning might cause some injury to the brain of their supposedly weak-minded children. So imprinted on their mind that they were inferior, so impressed upon them that they were incapable of life outside of being enslaved, that though they had been freed, they would continue to live as though they were captives. And many couldn't face leaving their master's. And it's a story repeated in many abusive relationships today. We see it with the Israelites and the Egyptians. Exactly the same relationship. Egypt supplied some food, some housing, perhaps even a few little comforts. And Egypt met those essential needs. But in return, they held the Israelites captive and held them as slaves. And in order for Israel to leave captivity, it meant giving up, having those needs met by the even though they were being met by the enemy, it meant giving up the fact that they were being met. I wouldn't blame them for thinking the enemy may be meeting our needs, but at least they're being met. But at some point they needed to say no to having their needs met by their captors. To go without, if necessary, that's the cost of freedom. There may be areas of your life where you're still living like a captive. Even though Jesus has freed you and you're a Christian, there may be areas of your life where well, you're still being held captive and you're still living like a captive. Your basic needs or part of your life is being met by the enemy or by sin or be, by being enslaved to one of the things we mentioned earlier. But it's costing you captivity and death. And the thought of going without that need is frightening. But in this regard, Christ, Christ's victory is different to any other human decree of freedom. Christ's victory is different. See, the victory of the cross, Paul Fidesz says, the victory of the cross actually creates victory in us. The act of Christ is one of those moments in human history that opens up new possibilities of existence. New possibilities of existence. It's fantastic. A new way of living where God provides in ways that you cannot imagine. When you're in captivity, you just can't imagine it where God protects and God creates a new life and creates a new way and a new you. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. Let me give you an example from my own life. Even though I've been a Christian for my whole life, really, throughout my teens and my 20s, I was captive to a really low self-esteem, to the world's valuation of me. I didn't want to be me. I continued to tell myself how much of a loser I was. Complete failure, no value, unlovable nothing. That was my identity, I just accepted it. I was a captive, but I didn't know it. And when I reached my 20s, I moved to a huge church and began dating different girls, but it wasn't about seeking a healthy relationship, rather it was about meeting that need to be valued. You know, if you date me, then I must be worth something. That kind of messed up idea. And after my seventh two-week relationship in two years, I figured something wasn't quite right. (laughs) Poor girls, I'm so sorry. (laughs) And over a period of 18 months, God totally rebuilt my value system and how I saw myself. The victory of the cross was central to this. To return to the ancient story, Jesus was the king's ransom paid for my soul. He exchanged my valuation of myself For his valuation of me. And I kept reminding myself, if I am nothing, then Christ died for nothing. Without the cross, I couldn't say that. I'd still be where I was. But Christ's victory became my victory. And then God showed me that I was his handiwork, his work of art. And we moved on. And two years into that process, it was a long process, I was stood on a beach saying, all right, Lord, um, at what point do I need to look at dating again? Um, and the sense I got from God was, not yet, because I don't want to share you with anyone else yet. That's a fantastic thing for the Lord to say to me. And I was at complete peace with it. There was no sense of, about it. it complete peace. But I want you to understand what was going on there. I'd been freed from cap- captivity, uh, freed from Satan's captivity when I was, became a Christian, in principle. But I took on that captivity in that area of my life as I grew up. And the principalities and powers ensured that I took on the world's view of me, the enemy's view, the enemy's, um, what the enemy wanted me to think of myself, as so many people do. And so despite being freed, I was living as a captive. And One of the challenges I think God's bringing to us today is that for many of us, there are areas of our lives where we are still living as captives in need of liberation despite the fact that God has already liberated us. Areas where we might be aware that something isn't right, but we've got no idea of what a particularly difficult area of life could look like if God was to walk us out of that captivity. No idea of, of what it could look like. No idea of what possibilities God might create. just can't see it. But that's, God, that's who God is. He creates ex nihilo. He creates out of Nothing. He creates possibilities out of nothing. He creates a way where there was no way before. And because of his victory on the cross, we can walk into those newly created possibilities and we create them with God. That's the power. That's what he does. And Jesus wants his victory to be our victory in every area of life. He is willing Are you. And if that's you then we're going to respond later, and you need to come forward for prayer. What happens next is that Jesus, just before his ascension, commissions the church to continue liberating people. Do what I've been doing. To continue running rescue missions, continue advancing the kingdom. Despite the fact that the War of the Cosmos had been won, the victory had been accomplished, yet... The victory is not yet fully manifest in the world. And of course, if we look around us, we've got no problem seeing that God's victory is not yet fully manifest in the world. We see broken people everywhere. We see people in need of liberation from captivity, people oppressed by racism, sexism, religion, economy, poverty. We see people who need our help. We, need, we see people who just need God. And just as we have been liberated, so must we liberate. Not just in terms of salvation, though, of course, that's, that's an obvious one, but any area where people are held captive. That's our co-mission with God. And Lord, if we lack it, please help us to see people in captivity the way you see them, as precious, prized, and worth leaving our places of comfort to rescue. But it's not just humanity. Remember, remember Christus Victor is the cosmos-centered victory. Humanity's original vocation in Genesis was to look after creation, to rule over it in the way that God rules over things, by cultivating, by blessing, by growing, protecting and providing. So there's work to do in liberating creation from, from evil too. But let's get back to the story. There's this promise in there of success and resistance. Matthew 16:18, Jesus says, I will build my church, success, And the gates of hell will not overcome it. Resistance. Now, it's important to understand the resistance that we face. No known battle in the history of wars uh, has has any offensive uh, army armed themselves with gates. Or picket fences. Or trees. It just hasn't happened. It doesn't happen. It's a crazy idea. Because gates are a defensive fortification. They are about resistance. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ building his church. So we have this end point over here where Christ returns. Every knee bows. The church is built. And finally, there's no one held in captivity to Satan or his principalities. There'll be no sickness, no oppression, no poverty, no Facebook, no X Factor. And the whole of creation is fully and finally reconciled to Christ. Death is not only defeated, but is no more. Where the accomplished work on the cross is fully manifest... We have this other point in the past where Christ triumphed over the enemy. And we're living in this tension in between these two points. So what does that mean for us? It means that we have access to everything that was won through the cross. Salvation, healing, intimacy with God. These new possibilities I was talking about. This new life. But it means, too, that we always face resistance from the enemy. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is coming And the kingdom of God will come. The work on the cross is now accomplished. But it also is not yet fully manifest. And we see that in the New Testament a little. When Paul mentions it in 1 Thessalonians. uh, For we want to come to you. So the eye Paul did again and again. But Satan blocks our way. So there's still resistance. There's still an enemy. But he's in retreat. And the best way I've come across of explaining this. And understanding this comes from um, a guy called Oscar Cullman in his book Christ in Time. And Cullman likens Christ's uh, decisive victory on the cross to D-Day in World War II. I know Ben Dulan mentioned this um, three months ago, but it was kind of in passing. I thought it would be good to kind of revisit it a little. And it goes a bit like this. In 1944, the Germans, this is World War II, the German forces occupied mainland Europe They had that uh, concrete wall, the iron wall, um, across the whole of mainland Europe. The Allies had no foothold. And then on June the 6th, 1944, 156,000 Allies landed at Normandy against just 10,000 troops, German troops, and broke through those enemy lines. D-Day, the decisive battle of World War II, was won. Victory was assured, but the battle, of course, wasn't over. The European part of the war didn't end until VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. And VE Day was the day that uh, the Allies accepted the unconditional surrender of Germany 11 months after D-Day. And the thing to remember about this is that more European active service personnel lost their lives in the 11 months between D-Day and VE Day than the rest of the war put together. From D-Day onwards... As the Allies advanced towards Berlin, the casualties were high. The resistance against the advance was strong. The Germans didn't just roll out the carpet. And even though the Germans knew quickly that they had lost the decisive battle, they naturally resisted. The enemy would retreat and fortify repeatedly, repeat and fortify, repeat and fortify, until the Allies arrived in Berlin to force surrender. So if Christ's victory on the cross is D-Day and Christ's return is V-E-Day then we're we're living in the tension between the two. We have this mortally wounded enemy and the end is assured, but Satan and his army is not about to collapse. Not about to surrender and roll out the red carpet for our rescue missions. So it means that as we pray we have to expect resistance, fierce resistance, and prayer and waiting is the norm. We have to persevere, as John says, uh, sorry, Jesus says, In John 16, 33, In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We see this again in Daniel 10, um, another um, scriptural example which I find incredibly helpful personally. Um, Daniel has this revelation where he prays for three weeks for an explanation um, which he receives in a vision. Three weeks of prayer just for an answer, just for an an explanation to his question of, Lord, what did you mean? we give up really easily. Daniel 10, verse 12. Do not be afraid, Daniel. This is the angel speaking after three weeks of prayer. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. But but the prince of the Persian kingdom, that's a demon, resisted me 21 days. And then Michael, one of the chief princes, who's an angel, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. So do you see what happens there? There's prayer. An immediate angelic response is released. Then there's resistance. So perseverance in prayer is required. And eventually he gets through and delivers the message. And that's just three weeks of prayer, perseverance for an answer to prayer, to an an explanation. And the things we're asking for could cause some real problems for the enemy. People to be saved, healing, provision, mighty things. Do we persevere in our prayers for three weeks? I hope so. But I know that I give up really easily. Heidi Baker, uh, she leads a ministry in Mozambique called Iris Ministries. And she was given this prophecy that she would see blind people healed. So she prayed for every blind person that she met. And um, after the first few, nobody's eyes were restored. And so she prayed again for more and more, and still nobody's eyes were restored, nobody was healed. And then after praying for over 100 people, she she estimates, that was the first time she saw her first healing. 100, praying for people 100 times um, for their sight to be restored. Modern life seems to disarm us, or is it the enemy, from, from persevering prayers. We want instant results, and if we don't see instant results, we just give up. We're not built for perseverance, but we have to be. If we're going to operate in this war, if it were me, I would probably have prayed for a few people and then started to doubt the prophecy. But we've got to we've got to press in, and of course, it means this this kind of resistance and perseverance model also means that there are going to be ba- battles. There are going to be battles where we don't see the miracle that we're asking for here on earth. We will see it eventually because the cross uh, is eternal, but. Um, we might not see it here on earth. But while the eternal victory is won, many people on earth are on very short timelines to receive their miracle. I'm sure we all know people who we've prayed for, but they haven't got better and then they've died. Um, we know that God's heart is to heal and how, how we understand that kind of circumstance where we've prayed for somebody to be healed and yet they've died is very, very important because it affects how we see God and what we think of God and what we believe of him and our relationship with him. We know that God's heart is to heal because in the Gospels, everyone who asked Jesus to heal them was healed. So that's God's heart on the matter, yeah? Jesus is God revealed. Or in the latest social media craze, Jesus is God's selfie. <laughs> I think it's think a great way of remind, reminding yourself. And Jesus didn't go around asking God the Father to stop making people sick. God doesn't hand out sicknesses. But rather, our God who is revealed through Jesus, treated sickness like the enemy, like an expression of the enemy. So don't ever doubt that your father wants you well, but instead expect a huge amount of resistance from the enemy. See, I've prayed for hundreds and hundreds of people to be healed, I think, lots anyway. And I've seen two healings, two definite healings. And I could focus on that as a percentage or the number of people not healed, or just give up on prayer, um, I just think, what's the point? Although, to be fair, there's probably been, only been a handful of people where I've persevered for months and months and months. But what's amazing is that anybody was healed at all. It's phenomenal that people are healed. If we just see one miracle, it's phenomenal. We need to see every miracle, small or large, healing or provision, anything as a signpost of the kingdom to come. This is what's on its way. It's coming soon. This is what we leave earth and go to. The enemy will do anything to to help you forget, or to make you forget your victories, in order to focus on the times when it seems that nothing changed. And this is the second thing that I think the Lord wants us to respond to today. That as I was preparing, I really felt God's heart on this. That there are people here at G2 that feel hurt and angry. That they've persevered in prayer. That they've Pressed in and they've kept going in prayer. And they haven't seen any change. And perhaps unconsciously that hurt and anger has created some distance between you and God. And you're starting to wonder whether God ignores your prayers. He seems to hear his favorite kids, but not me. And we begin to doubt whether God even cares. And while this warfare motif is helpful, it still doesn't change the fact that you're hurt or you're sick, your friends are lost and that you still can't see what God might be doing about it. Well, I think that God wants to minister to you in your disappointment, in your frustration and in your pain. I want you to know that God weeps with you as your tears flow out of unanswered prayer. God weeps with you as your tears flow out from the hurt and the disappointment of unanswered prayer. See, I find that God doesn't respond first with answers, but rather he responds first, and sometimes only, with his presence. And I don't, don't allow disappointment from unanswered prayer to separate you from God. So if you're struggling with disappointment in prayer, then you need to respond in the ministry time. He wants to meet you, he wants to reach you, hold your heart to reach in. He wants to strengthen you to continue to pray, but this time by faith and not by sight. He wants to encourage you that when you pray, things always happen, to affirm you. Don't miss out on what God has for you. So, just as I conclude, I'm going to conclude with Paul's exhortation to the church in Ephesus. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand.